Hello and welcome to episode 384 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. Hello! This is the Joey Galloway edition of the Pelton Cast. I saw this a couple weeks ago. I was looking up classic Seahawks players or whatever. I was looking at actually the uh, the Pro Football Reference has like likelihood of Hall of Fame stats mm-hmm. and where players rank. And I was wondering how many players from the current team were, or not from the current team, from the current era would be going to the Hall of Fame. The Bobby Carroll era. Bobby Wagner is the only one who's basically a lock. Sherman, Earl Thomas, Russell Wilson all have maybe some work to do. Yeah, I think Earl Thomas with his all pros is probably going to make it. Although you know, I feel like Sherman's more likely the to make of his it. His career than, is not very long. I feel like Richard Sherman is more likely to make it than Earl Thomas is. I would say that Sherman, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe I think Ross is also basically a lot. Yeah, I think he's going to make it. I think, you know, some of those metrics are probably calculated for a different era for quarterbacks where it was a little more count the rings focused. I I have no idea. I mean, there were a lot of yards back in the day. Completion percentages, not so much. But uh, I don't... Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Because when... Who who started against the Seahawks last week for career? Andy Dalton. Andy like, Dalton. He's like 30th all time in career yardage. Yes, yeah. And he's like 18th among but active quarterbacks. Quarterbacks threw for more yards in single season sometimes. Like Dan Marino has so many yards. Yeah. But the completion percentages were low, and they just didn't play for as long. Correct. So Andy Dalton's been playing for a long time. Anyway, for the Joey Galloway edition, I was looking at Joey Galloway, one of the greatest wide receivers in Seahawks history, right? One yep. of the most exciting players. How many Pro Bowls also, do you think Joey Galloway went to? So you're saying he went to zero? I'm asking you a question. I'm not saying anything. I'm, I mean, based on the way you're phrasing the question, my guess is zero. Zero Pro Bowls! For Joey Galloway, maybe it was harder in those days, but like his stats, he also was very good through quite old. Joey Galloway, like in Tampa Bay, Washington, three consecutive thousand yard seasons from age 34 to 36. That's pretty in Tampa Bay, and not one time made a Pro Bowl. Huh. Well, no, I would not have guessed that. Um, That's incredible, is it not? Joey Galloway, also relevant. Perhaps by the time you listen to this, the uh, James Harden holdout will be resolved. But Joey Galloway reported just in time to the Seahawks that his contract would not be told is an impending free agent this season that he got traded to uh, Dallas. Or I guess it was was final season before he got traded to Dallas when he played eight games. And that's the rule that uh, is going to force James Harden to show up at some point during training camp. There we go. So his contract being told. Anyway, I saw that. I was looking up Joey Galloway, almost 11,000 career yards, right? He has 6,000 receiving yard seasons, but not even as like a kick returner. In no way did Joey, there's so many worse players who made Pro Bowls and Joey Galloway did not make a single one. We also played in the wrong era because it was before like 80 players per year made the Pro Bowl. So per conference, I guess per year. Uh, I Joey Galloway came up because if sometime recently because of 
his 89-yard punt return, but I can't remember for a touchdown, but I can't remember what the context of that was. It definitely was on Twitter recently, though. Well, he he is the NFL's career leader in receiving yards and receiving touchdowns among players never selected to the Pro Bowl. Huh. That's kind of incredible. Yeah. And it wasn't even like there's some players where you're like, yeah, he just was never he never was that great. Like I would have assumed if you would have asked me like who is the player who who like I'd be like it's a money tumor or something, right? Speaking of the Giants. Well, there would be a player who's like a pretty good possession player, but never a number one receiver. What about what about another number eighty four for the Seahawks? Bobby Ingram? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's who I would think of is somebody like that or something. Or like Adam Thielen. But Adam Thielen's definitely made Pro Bowls. Oh, for sure. He's made Pro Bowls. But I think Joey Gallo is probably a better player than Adam Thielen is. By being room had one 1,000-yard season. It was for the Seahawks in 2007. Bobby Ingram was great, though. Shouts to Bobby Ingram. Adam well, Thielen's made two. He did have a, he had a lot of yards a couple of years there. But much like Mark McGuire, we're not here to talk about the Seahawks' past. We're here to talk about the Seahawks' present. There we go. It's a semi-emergency pod after their 24-3 victory over the New York Giants. I had to double-check that that was the correct score because... The score really, the Kevin sc- Pelton? The score didn't really matter. All that mattered was the vibes. And the vibes were terrible for the Giants. And the vibes were amazing for the Seahawks defense and Devin Witherspoon in particular. So I don't you know what? Let's let's do this week's beer. Okay. As we continue our fresh hop season hashtag. It's the Stroop Strata Fresh Hop Fiend, the second in our 2023 Fresh Hop Fiend series. Strata Fresh Hop Fiend is packed with 300 pounds per batch. Of Strata Fresh Hops from our friends at Roy Farms in Moxie, Washington. I have no context for how much fresh hops that is. That's a lot of fresh but hops. It sounds like a lot. Or a little fresh hops. It's a defensive lineman worth of fresh hops. Strata brings aromas of melon and passion fruit. Drink it fast and fresh. I didn't drink it that fast. I bought this last week and chose the other beer that we had previously. But need to crack this open so that we can toast to Devin Witherspoon. To Devin fucking Witherspoon. Are you kidding me? Undefeated Devin Witherspoon is who he should be known as to you. This game, we talked about last week where he was everywhere on the field. This was everywhere on the field. Last week looks like nothing compared to the Devin Witherspoon that we saw this week. And are we cheersing to him? Yeah. This is like... He's my favorite football player of all time. We, we might be cheersing to the, like, the Seahawks front office and coaching staff because... It, I was. T- I told you on Sunday that like with Anthony Richardson leading the Colts comeback and C.J. Stroud having another terrific game for Houston, it was like, oh man, we were like really close to getting uh, a high-end quarterback prospect. But I'm not lamenting that as much. Tonight. Absolutely not. I mean, we are talking about he must be the front runner for defensive rookie of the year at this point. Come tomorrow, Devin Witherspoon is the front runner for defensive rookie of the year. Nobody's talking about Jalen Carter. Right now, and I can tell you who is not thinking about Jalen Carter at the moment, and that is the Seattle Seahawks and Pete Carroll. Can you believe? I still, this is such a crazy point to me. Devin Witherspoon, with the way that he plays, how fast, how hard he hits, played at Illinois. I just <laughs> well, he, it was he, lightly recruited. I I want to go back and watch Devin Witherspoon high school tape to try to understand this. He played at a school, one of the five schools that have never once hosted 
uh, college game day. What a way to re- repeat the stat that I told you earlier today as if you came up with no, it. No, we were going through it and I thought it in the moment. I oh, was yeah. like, wow, Devin Witherspoon played at one of the five. I mean, so did Marshawn Lynch. But to to have come from the University of Illinois, be the number five pick in the draft, be a bit of a surprise as the number five pick in the draft. And I'm telling you right now, you can redraft the 2023 NFL draft. It might go Stroud Richardson, number one and two. I'm not sure. It is going Devin Witherspoon, number three. He is a difference maker. I, I don't know if I'm ready to go that far, but it's definitely not going uh, any lower than five. That's for sure. He, he is a difference maker defensively. I mean, almost not single-handedly because the defense in general played amazing. He sealed the game today, though, with the pick six. The speed that he had, the multiple sacks, the tackles, even without the pick six, he was having such an incredible game. And that was just the cherry on top. It is at another level right now. I was looking for a Siaka went to Syracuse because I knew that applied to them. Olindo Mare. Olindo, wow. Yeah. The, but for a rookie in his third ever game to have done what he did on national TV like that to the New York Giants, he put the bag on that person's head personally <laughs> in this game. It was incredible. The offense was kind of sluggish in this game. It was meh. The offense was fine. Obviously, Geno Smith got injured. There were there yeah, were they, some. They played it pretty conservatively in the second half. I mean, they they had one series where they were up, where they just they, they were up twenty one three and passed. I think every down. Yeah. But the offense in general, it wasn't quite clicking in the way that it has been, and I think the way that we might have expected against the Giants, and it didn't fucking matter because of everything that Devin Witherspoon did in this game and the Seahawks defense in general yeah, with the sacks, but he definitely got it started. He was the ringleader. And I think it's one of those situations where we kind of saw this with the Jets last year in Sauce, who who from now on will be known as Trash Sauce Gardner. Compared to Devin Witherspoon, it's not comparable. He is the best cornerback in the NFL, excluding oh, nobody right. today. Right. Let's all remain calm. He had two sacks and a pick six and so, how many tackles in the end? I believe seven. Seven tackles. Per Optistats, Witherspoon, the only NFL player to have multiple sacks and a touchdown return of 95-plus yards in the same game since sacks became an official stat There in we go. That's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the 95-yard interception return is a high bar. but The entire run of Guns N' Roses happened after that. <laughs> That's what you went with? Yeah. My entire life happened after that van halen was beforehand so uh or i guess not because my five months of my life happened prior to the first nfl game exactly yeah (laughs) but what he did i think it it got the rest of the defense going also having somebody like that on the field this was without jamal adams who at the same time jamal adams looked pretty fast out there as well and I just, Jamal Adams, somebody who clearly cannot catch a break, but uh, <laughs> just mean, having it happen two consecutive times being injured on the first series. Nine plays. That is wild. I mean, the fact that it was the first series last year against the Broncos, right? I, I don't specifically I'm pretty remember sure he was injured on the first series that he played last year. And then for it to be the first series, get a concussion this game. Jamal Adams will be back after the bye. Having two players like that in your secondary who have such a unique ability. I think Devin Witherspoon is a better tackler. He's a bigger hitter than Jamal Adams is. But who move at the speed that they move. Think about what you just said there. 
that Devin Witherspoon's a better tackler than Jamal Adams? Yeah. He's a really good tackler. He is, I agree. But that's still an amazing thing to be saying about a cornerback relative to a box safety. I mean, I would take Devin Witherspoon versus anybody. But to have two players like that on the field is, you know, we we only got to see a brief bit of it. They hadn't really settled in on that first drive necessarily. But this is a secondary that is going to look unlike anything we've seen from the Seahawks in quite a few years. It was not the first series for the record. It was a later series against Denver? Yes. Okay. So, might have been the first quarter. Yeah. I just, I it's it's a pretty incredible thing that they have going from the secondary forward. And it's a little bit different. This isn't exactly Legion of Boom, right? It's a little bit different than it was, and I think that's good. And I think that's a cool thing that they have right now is just Devin Witherspoon is kind of unlike any of the Legion of Boom players. He's really not... Richard Sherman is not exactly a great, a perfect comp for him because he's doing things that... That wasn't exactly a Richard Sherman-like game out there. Was it a Deion Sanders-like game? No, absolutely not a Deion Sanders-like game. It is... Devin Witherspoon is a thing unto himself well, at this point. I mean, I think to some degree, he's kind of a modern secondary player and that's one of the things i think that is interesting to converse about because we've seen this more probably at the college level than the nfl level but in college in some ways that nickelback has become as important or more as your outside corners because of the fact that so much of you know the action is around the line of scrimmage and things like that and that's some of the plays i don't you know, I don't know that Witherspoon was ever lining up in that role, or it's kind of like a. It's in college, it's more of a hybrid corner slash safety in a lot of schemes, the nickel corner position, which is why you know the Huskies last year put Dominic Hampton in that role. Well, I mean, you think about all the ways that the Seahawks have been beaten, and it is over the middle repeatedly, right? Those offenses that have killed the Seahawks over and over and over again is finding those soft spots in the middle of the field, and having somebody like Witherspoon in that middle of the field changes things so here's the question we need to talk about the only reason he played nickel today for much of the game sliding inside with mike jackson going outside in situations when they went to the nickel is because the seahawks were down kobe bryant and Artie burns at cornerback in addition to trey brown Brown. that didn't necessarily affect that but you also think when you get trey brown back in the mix should Devin Witherspoon permanently be sliding back and forth besides out, between outside corner and nickelback to put him closer to the line of scrimmage, more opportunities to blitz the quarterback off the edge? Oh, I mean, he was such an impact player blitzing. I mean, teams will be more prepared for that than the Giants were, but the more attention you're paying to exactly Devin Witherspoon in that role, the more opportunities there are to blitz Demol Adams, to blitz yeah. Bobby Wagner. You know, the, the Seahawks are suddenly going to have a lot of options. And the pass rush looked good today as well. There were a few moments earlier where it's like breakthrough, I mean, breakthrough, breakthrough. I mean, they tied the franchise record with 11 sacks, four different players, and two sacks in this it game. Took a, it took a second. Early on, it was like push, 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 get there, get there. And then the floodgates opened in the second half, especially. And to have those pass rushes, this is what we talked about. Everybody kind of got in the mix today. Obviously, you could chalk it up to the Giants being a bad team. We don't want to take too much away from... And having injuries on the offensive line, although we'll get to that in a second. I, I think what we talked about with Ben at the beginning of the season was, can the Seahawks be 
and Football Outsiders obviously saw this, can the Seahawks be an average defensive team? Yeah, today was a very Football Outsiders preseason thing. <laughs> also not Football Outsiders. It was a very DVOA preseason projection. This, this was, the, I guess, yes, not Football Outsiders. But this was the kind of game that I think Pete Carroll must have been so pumped and jacked about. Right? Oh, yeah. And and the offense, we didn't run the bad offense. You know what I mean? There were a lot of penalties on the offense. And the, we'll, I guess we'll talk about the offensive line injuries as well. But they didn't sit back and say, we're going to grind it out. This wasn't the fucking Arizona Cardinals 3-3 three, three and 3 tied. It was really only the opening drive of the third quarter where they really came out intent on establishing the run and did so successfully. It kind of yeah. reminded me. But it then, wasn't as dramatic. Do you know what they did at the end of that, that drive? That Pittsburgh game two years ago when Geno Smith started in the first drive after halftime. They, every yeah. single run down the field. But do you scored. know what happened at the end of that drive? They went for it on fourth and they one. They went for it on a fourth down. They didn't get it, and they kept coming after it. And that was something that that is not... This is a different Pete Carroll that we've seen in the last two years. And I... I think this is this is the kind of game that he wants to play. They ran the ball a little bit. Ken Walker wasn't great in this game. Charbonnet had a handful of runs. Ken Walker pulled away and, and ended up having a couple of big plays. So I think statistically, it probably looks okay for Ken Walker in, in the, the aggregate. But on an individual success rate level, Ken Walker wasn't necessarily that amazing in this one. But they used play action they got the ball in the space they passed on early downs sometimes and the defense led the way yeah i mean this was it's when was the last time that the seahawks really kicked somebody's ass on the road or in general hmm. i mean i'm sure it happened at some point you i mean you talked about there the, were some comfortable wins last year that the we'd... lions win was like their best win since at chargers probably yes Yes. And that might be the last game that qualifies for this. The Chargers game? I mean, that wasn't a blowout necessarily, but it was a pretty comfortable victory. I guess they, they did have a... Did they have a blowout win at some point at home at the end of the season? I mean, the Jets 23-6? to Or or do we go back to the Giants game last year? I think you got to go pretty far back. I mean, they beat the Giants by two touchdowns. Honestly... I mean, he, here's here's the margin of victory, right? Three points against the Rams. 17 against a very, very bad Jets team. Lose by 14. Lose by 7. Lose by 6. Win by 4. Lose by 6. Lose by 5. Win by 10 at Arizona. Not really an impressive game, though. And then they beat the Giants by two touchdowns. At Chargers by two touchdowns was... Kind of the last time, but and especially on the road, they had just some bad losses last year. And this is the team that lost to the fucking Saints 39 32. This is a different team a year later. As a reminder, they lost all four games to the NFC South last year. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is their biggest margin of victory since at least 2021. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say, again, to your point, that like the offense and defense were both clicking in this game. But the offense, usually when one of the units plays as well as the defense did this week, the other unit isn't keeping up the end of the bar. It's end of the bargain. So you're getting like the shootout wins against Detroit the last couple of years. More, more we so. really have play, played the Lions a lot of times, three years in a row. Because the game that I was thinking of with the last blowout was Amon Ross St. Brown's rookie year yeah. against the Lions yeah. and where it, the Seahawks just put everything together. Where we determined that Russell Wilson was back and the Seahawks were ready for 2022. I well, I mean, they went at Arizona, too, where he really fought. 
But like, aside from that game, this is this is the this is the Seahawks' biggest victory by points since that game. And then before then, Jacksonville, was the, the one Geno Smith win yeah. when he started. So I mean, we're talking about like, look, do I think the Giants are a good team? Obviously not. But beating bad teams comfortably, giving up three points defensively, is a pretty big deal. This is a huge win. I've kind of talked myself into it. Wow, you really have. I mean, let's talk about the injuries because I think they provide some context for the offense. Uh, certainly a well-timed bye week coming up for the Seahawks with all these players leaving. We mentioned Jamal Adams suffering a concussion on the ninth play of his first game. Pete Carroll reiterated multiple times post-game that he will be fine. I mean, obviously you'd never want to downplay a concussion, but relative to the season-ending injuries that Jamal Adams has faced the last two years, thankfully as frustrated as he obviously was on the sidelines after being told he was going to be uh, not going to be able to return, like, this is not going to be months of rehab or something like that. So, you know, that's that's the good news, such as it is. Uh, Phil Haynes left with a calf injury, possibly re-aggravating the one that caused him to miss week six. That's probably, I'd say, the most concerning long-term of these injuries. Damian Lewis twisted his ankle. Jaron Reed kicked in the shin. Sounds like those <laughs> both should not be long-term injuries. These sound like injuries after like a children's soccer match or something. <laughs> and then it's like it's like you're like in a Wes Anderson movie. You're like Jaron Reed kicked in the shin. <laughs> Damian Lewis twisted his ankle. Like like you're like have a mustache and you're reading a docket after a game to people for some reason. I gotta say, Benedict. There's a bunch of like rough and tumble kids in the background. It's like the final score was two to one. Injuries include Damian Lewis. Kicked in the shin. I mean, that is a very English name. It works. <laughs> Jaron Reed. Or okay, Jaron Reed is who kicked in, the, kicked in the shin. He was, yes. Damian Lewis. Twisted ankle. Jaron Reed. Kicked in the shin. <laughs> trying to cover your back's, batch's mustache. The, uh, <laughs> That's the role you. of doll short is quite, quite spectacular, I gotta say. Uh, kicked in the shin. <laughs> so when Haynes and Lewis both left, you're also down... You're both starting tackles with Cross and Lucas. And then Evan Brown moved out to guard with Olu Oluwatimi coming in for him. So you had none of the five starting linemen to start the season in their original positions. Two rookies in there. And all things considered, the Seahawks offensive line held up quite well. Yeah, I mean, even had some explosive explosives after that. Like the Ken Walker stats, you look at 17 for 79. He had negative EPA. I'm 28% success rate. Both him and Charbonnet. I think Charbonnet was a little bit more consistent. But uh, the, yeah, I mean, it wasn't nearly as many carries, but he had a 50% success rate, but also negative EPA. What was Ken Walker's success rate? 28. So I kind of called that. It was a pretty yeah. terrible success rate, but he had the one long play that sort of changed things. Correct. So if you were to sit back, all of a sudden you're picking offensive player of the week. <laughs> you're like, yeah, Ken Walker, that looks good. Well, he only got one touchdown this week, so yeah. I don't think he's going to get it. The, but the other injury we haven't talked about, Geno Smith leaving this game late in the first half, leaving Drew Locke to come in and lead a couple of drives, or one real drive before they just exclusively ran it yes. on their final drive of the first half. And, you and that man's name is Scrambling Drew Locke. Oh, wow. Yeah. You you reiterated, as we talked about in the, the season preview pod with Ben Baldwin, that we were kind of curious just what would it look like with Drew Locke in there? And this seems like it was the ideal, what would it look like situation? Because Geno Smith 
does not seem seriously injured. Obviously, was able to return for the second half. Now gets this well-timed week off. But we saw Drew Locke with no prep just get out there, very limited prep, because he did have uh, time in between series since Geno Smith finished the previous drive. And it wasn't always perfect, but makes a huge play to his former Denver teammate, Noah Fant, up the sidelines all the way down to the one-yard line to set up. Drew Locke made the entire play. No, but it, this half was the like, entire touch, Half I the offensive touchdowns for the Seahawks. The most important piece of it, you had the scramble for 11 yards. Obviously, he, there are only two completions. So, uh, but it was kind of a good two for six. Do, yeah. He was rushed a little bit on a few plays. Oh, that's right. The six was the fourth down. It was two for five in the first half. I think the most important thing about it was whether it is Geno Smith or Drew Locke out there, this offense isn't going to change that much. It did seem like they were a little more focused on getting Locke on the move to his right. Yeah. That definitely seemed like a goal. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't like they closed up shop and went no, super they didn't, conservative. they did not panic at all. I mean, if Drew Locke had to play this entire game, I don't know if the outcome would have been that different. Paris Campbell officially took a sack in this game. <laughs> well, there was like a, an end around. Huh. Right? If he receives it behind the quarterback and then his tack. Is that a sack? I, I don't know. I don't remember that specific play off the top of my head. I just noticed that he was lurking there in the uh, the Giants passing stats as one of their. But that QBR stats. for Drew Locke. Yeah. Yeah. 82. I mean, we know that QBR rewards. Was they love that rush. Lot, so. Love that scramble. But also a lot of EPA on the, the play to Noah Fant, which, you know, it was a low scoring game at that point. That really did open things up considerably. The the thing that, I, that I've complained about, I mentioned this to you a couple of times the last couple of years, is how completion percentage is basically it's a faulty stat to really look at at this point. Not a faulty stat. And that yards per, I mean, you look at Daniel Jones, 27 to 34. You're like, Hey, not that bad. Right. You, if you, all you knew about this was his completion percentage, you'd be like, Oh, dimes had an okay game. Literally the 10 sacks for 59 (laughs) yards. Not great. Well, also the fact that it was still under seven, under like, under six yards per completion? Yeah, under six exactly. yards per attempt, and, I should and say. And that's what I'm completion. talking about is, I mean, they averaged 3.4 yards per play with that completion percentage. And that's what the Seahawks defense does is they'll give up a little bit. They'll give up a little bit. When things are going well, that's what the Seahawks defense hey, does. since Devin Witherspoon has been on the field, this team is undefeated. Also undefeated with, in Mina Kimes' baby's life. So shout out to, to baby Kimes. The three turnovers. I love the the possession. It was still like, if you would have been like the Giants will have the ball 36 minutes to the Seahawks 24, and you'd be like, oh, it's a comfortable victory for the Seahawks. That would be an amazing situation. <laughs> it's like an old school possession uh, uh, difference. I don't know. I just, I lead this game. The Seahawks are now three and one, undefeated on the road. 2-0 on the road. It hasn't been necessarily the hardest schedule. In fact, I would say it's probably, I don't know, there's one one pretty good-looking game in there, a couple of easy ones. They might have played the two worst teams in the league in these first four games. And what the Seahawks need to do right now is they just have to start batching wins. And so that's what they're doing. When you play the worst teams in the league, you've got to beat them. And you don't have to beat them comfortably, but statistically it helps to beat them comfortably, to know where this team really stands. And this is going to help out the old DVOA, I think. Having a a big victory like this, definitely not going to help the Giants. 
And with the Seahawks at three and one going into the bye week, like you mentioned, getting everybody back healthy. Jamal Adams will be back. Gino should be fine. Hopefully the offensive line gets there. If Charles Cross is back after that, that'd be great. Yep. There are some winnable games on the other side of the bye week as well. At Cincinnati, Arizona, Cleveland, the first three coming out of the break. They 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 have to just keep winning these games. And that right now is kind of all we can ask from the Seahawks. It's a little frustrating because you look at it and you're just like, ah, if only. I mean, again, they lost by 17 to the Rams. It's not like it was a close game. But I mean, it'd be pretty wild if the Seahawks were one of two remaining undefeated teams. Right now, I don't know if they're necessarily... They're not necessarily not playing like it. So you have a Bengals team, which in two weeks we'll see what they look like. It could be it could be any Bengals team. We have no idea. But if they look like the Bengals have the last couple of weeks, it is a very winnable game. The Cardinals is a winnable game. The Browns at home is a winnable game. So if you can get through those, obviously it gets harder later on in the season. But Wait, they lost how bad yesterday? I somehow missed that final the Bengals, score. Oh, I mean, Joe Burrow looks... he's. Statistically, he is maybe one of the worst quarterbacks. He's maybe one of the five worst quarterbacks in the NFL at this point. That was a Daniel Jones-esque stat line, although without the rushing. Joe Burrow has two passing touchdowns all season. Who, buddy? So, yeah, 29th in QBR. I mean, obviously Joe Burrow is not healthy, and in two weeks he yeah. might be healthy. Yeah. So that that's kind of what the situation is, but this is still a team that lost 27-3 to the fucking Titans. They might need to play Jake Browdy a little bit. So, I'm, I'm, you know what? If they want him to start against a little revenge game against where he went to college, <laughs> I would be so in favor of them starting Jake Browning against the Seahawks. <laughs> Jake Browning did nothing wrong. So, but being in this position heading into the bye, I think we have to be so ecstatic about where the Seahawks are. And again, it, you can judge draft picks way far out or whatever. Jackson Smith and Jigbo will be fine. Right now, hasn't had that much of an impact. It would be nice... They did throw him a couple of passes beyond the line of scrimmage tonight. It would be nice if that became the focus because this whole, like, we're going to get him in space. It's a little strange. It's just not working. Just like it weirdly, it didn't work with Percy Hervin and just like weirdly, the guy they brought in for. I don't know if that's Jackson Smith and Jigba's game, though. I don't think it was at Ohio State necessarily, or at least the bulk of it. Just like weirdly, the guy they brought in for a workout last week didn't work with Tavon Austin. I'm starting to see a common denominator here. Maybe that offense doesn't work. Well, and also D. Eskridge as well was another player that they yep. tried to do very similar things with. But it, it might be something about that might be not as much on those players and more on they are scheming it up to get the ball to the tight ends in the places that you would expect for him to be. And then also hitting Tyler Lockett and even DK Metcalf in some of those situations. There weren't really any. There was one deep ball all game, right? The Seahawks did not throw deep in this game. Nope. Uh which they didn't need to necessarily, but the explosive play happened from Noah Fant breaking tackles and staying upright on the sideline and the yep. run from Ken Walker. Those were the explosive plays. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, I mean, Devin Witherspoon is just, I, they fucking did it. They did it. This is greater than our wildest dreams could have been for Devin Witherspoon. All the shit that I talked about Jalen Carter, everything I said about how right the Seahawks were, everything I said about Christian Gonzalez, about how I just I we had to rally around Devin Witherspoon because the Seahawks drafted him, and they did it. So I'm just the Seahawks made a a kind of the mildest left field pick that you could make at pick five, and they found that dude. I'm just I'm so hyped right now. It's exciting. I've got the Sean Springs jersey. I've got the Marcus Trufant jersey. I've got the Richard Sherman jersey. 
and you know who's coming next. You're ready to add to the collection. You so that before you have 23, 24, 25, you're gonna get 21. 21. Trey Brown. You need Trey Brown. <laughs> yeah, to really break out. <sighs> so that's all I'm saying is that for me as somebody who loves cornerbacks. More than anything, especially in Seahawks history, we have this lineage of players. Right now, Devin Witherspoon looks up there with any of them. Man, Reek Woolen is just over there like, huh. Oh, I know. You forgot about me already? But Reek Woolen is like, he's more of a traditional cornerback. When you see Devin Witherspoon, Tariq Woolen last year was such a good player in coverage. Obviously, the interceptions. He never showed up like Devin Witherspoon showed up in this game. There was... Almost nobody has. This is like a, he had a 95-yard pick, 99-yard pick six. And he had a game unlike anyone. And the tackles. Any player in NFL history has had in his third game. So I, just, I don't know. I'm floating right now. He, about he played higher than his ceiling in game three. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting on that one. Uh, it's... I'm just, I'm so excited about Devin. He's somebody who you just watch every play and then you see the play and you're like, how is Devin Witherspoon in on that play that happened over there? You, you're you like legitimately excited. This is the first time we watched a Seahawks game together in a long time. I don't, I don't, I think it was Christmas Eve was maybe the last time we watched a Seahawks game together. I mean, there haven't been that many games between uh, the, um, most of them have been at home. It's literally just you're saying the Lions game or whatever. Which I attended. <laughs> yeah. We didn't watch any preseason games together either. I famously hate the preseason because it's, Devin Witherspoon wasn't playing. It's all true. <laughs> <laughs> you were so excited anytime the Giants just threw the ball in Witherspoon's direction. I mean, you're just like, oh, he's going to make a tackle. He is, it. but he's such a good tackler, too. He is. I, I, I don't dispute any of the information. The hit that he made in the backfield, where yeah. was that Matt Breda? I believe it was. When Matt Breda just went backwards. When there's a hit either time, and, and Charbonnet, that's what I was telling you. The Seahawks in the first couple of rounds got a couple of players who have 100% in their DNA that dog in them. Jake Bobo got that dog in him? I think Jake Bobo a might blocker? have, I Jake think Jake Bobo Bobo that, might have dog that dog in him. JSN, I don't know. <laughs> it's so funny to me that the number five pick in the draft, you're like, yeah, yeah, good pick, whatever. <laughs> Getting a second player in the secondary. JSN, that's the real one. And then now, I'm sure that the, probably the Jets felt that way too, right? They were like, yeah, Garrett Wilson. And Garrett Wilson, obviously, has been good. But like... No team since it has become a stat, as my ESPN colleague George Levon, <sighs> no team since it has become a stat has allowed more sacks in their first two home games than the 18 the Giants allowed this season, per ESPN Very stats nice. and info. Very nice. 1987 Jets previously held the record with 16. So. He's, he's, a, he's a difference maker. He's the type of player that when you, play, when you watch the defense, you know, you could choose to watch whatever you want, but when you watch the defense, I'm finding 21. You've, you've got a, a lock on him. Yeah. A difference has been made. I'm so excited. Anything else on the Seahawks? I'm I'm bummed that we have to take a week off from watching the Seahawks. I'm looking forward to it. 70 degrees in Seattle. It'll be an amazing day to sit and watch other football games, cheer for the Cowboys against the Niners or whatever. But like, I'm I'm worried about how bad the traffic is in Seattle is going to be with a 70 degree day in October where the Seahawks Sunday in October where Seahawks are not playing. Where, where are you driving to? I don't know. We'll see. Just in general. I don't want to tell people where I'm going. Then okay. the traffic might be even worse. Oh, <laughs> to the hot spots. Those pumpkin patches are going to be overwhelmed on Sunday. <laughs> they uh, are. Yeah, no. I, 
<laughs> I didn't even think about that. I've got children's baseball. Yeah. So. All right, let's get into <sighs> our so usual bod- weekly podcast, starting with the rest of our toasts. Congrats to Jordan Horston on being voted to the WNBA All-Rookie Team on Monday, becoming just the fourth player in franchise history to earn that honor. Uh, All-Rookie Team did not exist until 2005, after Lauren Jackson and say, Sue Bird won Rookie of the Year. LG did not win Rookie of the Year, but they, they both debuted. Confirmed sucks. No, wait, wait. Brianna Stewart is who we don't like. Sorry. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, no, just say nothing negative about yeah. LJ. Uh, also, we've retroactively awarded her rookie of the year, of the year instead of Jackie Styles because it was such a ridiculous fucking. Was pick. it? What are oh, some yeah. retroactive things that we've awarded? Uh, that's the main one. So the storm. Oh, had... I've done. I've retroactively awarded all sorts of things. That's the main one. Maybe in storm history, I've would have. Well, I mean, the two thousand. Uh, <laughs> Richard Sherman's 11... defensive player of the year season. Well, I mean, yeah, he should have won. But like the season, what was it? Eleven that we lost to the Falcons in the playoffs. Twelve. 12 Super Bowl champs. Uh, <laughs> You've now awarded retroactive still DVOA champs. Still DVOA <laughs> champs. Obviously, the 90, 94 Mariners World Series victory. Well, I mean, you didn't award that, though. KJR, KJR awarded, awarded that, that one. Uh, well, what else did we retroactively award? Or that's Cairo. Cairo did that, obviously, because Niehaus broadcasted. Oh, the Sonics championship if uh, Gary Payton defended Michael Jordan the entire series. <laughs> and Nate McMillan healthy. Yep. B- both of those. That's mine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I awarded that in real time. <laughs> in real time. <laughs> <laughs> Never lost a game with Nate McMillan healthy in the finals. I mean. Look it up. It's true. <laughs> those are some of our best retroactive awards. Good. Husky football has retroactively given themselves <laughs> championships. <laughs> Sometimes people actually do it. <laughs> also, we've retroactively awarded Loretta Seattle's best burger. Oh, that's actually huge. Yes. No, we have. <laughs> that is the most important one. All right. So the Storm's previous all-rookie honorees, the two obvious number one picks who did win rookie of the year, Jewel Lloyd and Brianna Stewart, and also Romu, Romu Ramu Takashki. Oh. I don't know why I've forgotten how to pronounce it. rookie name. of the year? No, it was all-rookie. Oh, okay. So Jordan Horston, the fourth player to do so. But speaking of... Lauren Jackson. Okay. Congrats to LJ, who signed with the Southside Flyers to return to the WNBL in her native Australia after recovering from the Achilles rupture in February that we feared had ended her career. Wow. Lauren Jackson cannot be stopped. She, once she, you know, once she came back from retirement, it's, you're not going to get her Southside back You said Southside Flyers, and I was like, I don't think that's a WNBA team. <laughs> and then you said WNB, and I was like, They haven't gotten oh, the expansion to the Southside yet. Okay. W, the Southside Flyers. Yep, I love I love the nickname too, though the Flyers. I think you got the PF Flyer shoe, right? Yeah, I don't know if, what the actual Flyers use. Probably not that. All right, it's time for an important important follow ups on St. Louis pizza. There we go. First, ambiguous Midwest pizza. This was not a listener email. This was a listener text from the listener and friend of the pod, Ross Seiler. I went to St. Louis last oh month for work and was super excited to try a St. Louis pizza with the Provol cheese, and it was horrifically bad. Horrifically bad? <laughs> the worst pizza I've ever had, and I'm not a pizza connoisseur. He said in a follow-up text that uh, three-quarters of the pizza went in the trash, I believe is what he said. So, th- that bad. I and Honestly, when something when people think something is that bad, it makes me want to try it. <laughs> 
It's almost like this is so bad that I have to taste it. Like I have to know what your definition of right. bad is. It's like Seinfeld. Like I had to touch the plate to know what your definition of hot was. I want to share the emotion. I want to understand him. All right. We also have some follow-up on knockoff Pagliacci pizza in the Midwest. Andrew DeWitt, the son of Cardinals managing partner and chairman Bill DeWitt Jr., followed his then-girlfriend, now-wife, to Seattle and worked at Pagliacci circa 1995. Wow, okay. Specifically cited the Mariners run in 95. Before opening the first location of Dewey's Pizza in his hometown of Cincinnati in 1998. They have since expanded to the Cleveland, Columbus, and Dayton areas in Ohio, as well as Kansas City and St. Louis, with a total of 25 locations. Okay. Now, I looked at the menu. I would not say the menu, like the the toppings or the types of pizza, necessarily looks particularly inspired by Pagliacci. So I think it's mostly the dough that's comparable. No, Third Feldman brother uh, Noah Cohen can weigh in on that. But... Apparently, journalists who talk to Andrew DeWitt about his experience think Pagliacci is strictly takeout and delivery because he happened to work at one of those locations. That's really funny. Which I think means either the location along Highway 99 uh-huh. in Queen Anne or in the, the one in Interbay used to be oh takeout and delivery only before they remodeled How it. furious I was to work there and be like, I'm so close to a Pagliacci. Well, I'm very excited with the Storm's practice facility. Are they building it there? In Interbay. In that I'm area? I'm going to be at that Pagliacci all the time next season. They tore down the putt-putt golf course or whatever? <laughs> no, the putt-putt golf course is still there. I never liked it to begin with. They, they built it on the empty lot across from the business <laughs> office. Uh so. All right, well, that, that's good intel on some random pizza from the Midwest, <laughs> on some ambiguous Midwest pizza, which happens to be Pagliacci-inspired. I like it. Uh, so the only thing worse, as far as I can tell, linking this back to Andrew DeWitt, uh, <laughs> I will never not find that funny. Uh, the only thing worse than St. Louis pizza is actually Cardinals fans, apparently. <laughs> well, that's like a Jay Leno joke. I'm seeing here the... Uh, Anyway, we also have an update on troughs. Oh, we do have an update on, on troughs. troughs. That's a good we, point. We heard uh, do you because there was one person I believe Nate responded about how the troughs are still going strong in the three hundred level in the because that wasn't level. renovated when they renovated Husky Stadium. They renovated the the south side bleachers in the three hundred level, but the north side was left untouched, and therefore the only time that the south side standing. has gotten something better than the north side. <laughs> In Seattle, at least. <laughs> in a lot of places. I mean, traditionally, yes. Uh, so the north side of Husky Stadium. Troughs going strong. We also heard Washington State Ferries. I See, I should have known that. I've peed in a trough on Washington State Ferries. Maybe that's what I was thinking of last week. That's what you were thinking of? I've peed on two different ferries this summer, good there sir. There you go. Those are the troughs that you were thinking of. So <laughs> it is. they are still alive and well. People can know we don't need we don't need to worry about the last of the troughs in the Pacific Northwest. There are a couple of places you could still find them. Let us know. We'll maybe put together a Google Maps with oh, troughs. troughs. No. <laughs> <Bad>. <laughs> That's another Seinfeld. It's the app that George makes on the Seinfeld reunion, yes. where you can find a bathroom anywhere in the mm-hmm. app. Oh, there is something the listener suggested. We, you know, sometime soon. Talking taco time, the, 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 the taco signal, the cactus signal may get thrown up not Hello. too long here. But the, the listener suggested a spreadsheet so that we can keep notes on different locations for everyone to see. 
interesting like the specific details of like where certain stuff is available whether they're uh franchised or locally owned i think randy might just have to release his notes that's part of it yes because i think randy has the notes he has a lot of this information already but if we crowdsource it a little bit it could become even stronger wow because look randy's only going to make like wikipedia for taco time i don't know if we need to go that far but yeah so stay tuned on that one with that, I think it's time for your favorite segment. And I'm taking over this week. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. The 2023 Mariners missing the playoffs was the best thing oh God. that could have <laughs> possibly happened. <laughs> I recognize how ironic it is for this podcast to be lecturing people to remember their post-kingdom Mariners history, but we were paying enough attention to learn one lesson over and over again. A successful Mariners season begets a disappointing one. In 2007, the Mariners started this painful cycle by going 88 and 74. The next year, they lost 100 plus games for the first time since 1983. After winning 85 games in 2009, they slipped below 100 plus losses again. And after four consecutive losing seasons, the M's alternated above 500 and below 500 seasons every year from 2014 through 2019. I grant all your complaints about how frustrating this season was and how disappointing the Mariners' offseason admissions were, what with Tommy LaStella DHE on opening night, <laughs> still hard to believe, Colton Wong being released midseason, and the long-forgotten A.J. Pollock jettisoned in a deadline trade. But if you think that's a bad offseason... You, sir, must not remember trading Adam Jones in a second All-Star in George Sherrill for Eric Bedard and then losing 100-plus games. The Mariners have managed to avoid any costly mistakes that will hamper the long-term outlook for a team built around a 22-year-old budding superstar, no matter what you say. Now, the Mariners get to benefit from the opposite side of their historic seesaw, which saw those disappointing seasons give way to surprising success. Simple regression of the mean is back in the 2024 Mariners' favor. Their run differential was the best it's been since 2003, and that came with injuries battering their starting position pitching. Yes, Mariners' management needs to be active participants in their own rescue by opening up their pocketbooks and spending more money on hitting, particularly after raising prices for season tickets after another lucrative season at the gates. But even if they don't, the Mariners are headed in the right direction. And they might have what happened last weekend to thank for it. <laughs> the listener can't see the look you're giving me. This is you, the most cope aid that I've ever heard. <laughs> it's an incredible take of just instant coping. <laughs> of course. You know, the season, the cycles, the cope cycle is you're supposed to be angry at first. I guess you've already recovered. It was Saturday that you were angry. Well, we, they, that was last week's text. You really mourned the season, even though subsequent to that podcast, the very day we released that podcast, we went to what we call the most thrilling Mariners game. You said that was the most thrilling Mariners game we'd attended since 1995. I mean, it had to be. Not even close, really. J.P. Crawford walking it off to keep the playoff hopes alive with a two-run double with <sighs> two outs in the bottom of the ninth when it looked like the Mariners pitching for Sam Haggerty was going to doom them. I mean, it still happened. We know what happened. We took notes, Scott Service. You're in the book. Would have ended quicker if Haggerty had stayed up there. I, 
I that's a that's a really really nice take that you have there. And then Friday got our hopes so up with an eight nothing shutout. I win. see. I I, I never got my hopes that high. Oh, my I hopes was were convinced. Way up. I was convinced that the Mariners were going to sweep the Rangers and still miss the playoffs. I agree with that, but that still counted as hopes being up because that would have meant a thrilling Sunday game one sixty two. I guess so. Instead of a game that I did not watch one single. Oh no, of. I don't think I don't think anybody did. Some people must have. There must have been people in attendance. I don't know. Ross, Ross Seiler, the, the listener, was there. Was he there? He was there. He posted about it. Well, I'm sure that was nice. I don't know. He didn't be in a trough, though. <laughs> uh, or he'd say, I got that notification about it, and I was like, oh, hmm, I guess the Mariners played today. Yeah. I thought we all agreed the season was over yesterday. This was. I was kind of surprised they still pitched George Kirby. Did they? Yeah, he pitched I six mean, innings. Did you, you didn't see that he threw a knuckleball? I literally I knew nothing about the game. He threw a knuckleball. That was it. The Mariners were dead to me after Saturday. And I was waiting for so long to just call it on the Mariners. That's what the season was frustrating. At the same time, like if if I have to if I have to agree with some of your coping, if you could pay attention to a baseball season until the second to last day, you've gotten a good baseball season. Yes. Like postseason baseball though is unlike almost anything else. And we saw it last year. We got a taste of it. And to me, unlike In the Mariners... that are both good and terrible. But it's, it is addicting paying attention to postseason baseball. That series, the series that they won against the Blue Jays, and even the series that they lost against the Astros, it was every moment was exciting in that series, right? Like, we were so high when they were crushing Justin Verlander in Game 1 until Jordan ended everything. And then the 18-inning game, right? Like, there were moments that happened in that series where you're like, I just need more of this. And that's what I assumed that everybody else thought, except for the Mariners' front office. <laughs> they were good with the regular season. They said, we've profited in an amazing way here. We have our future all tied up in Julio Rodriguez. Every dollar we will ever spend is tied up there. Right now, what the Mariners are doing is they are doing nothing but profiting. They're not spending more money than they would have otherwise, right? They have not done anything based upon their current success. I mean, they did add some salary with Teoscar. But it's probably salary that they... It's like a normal attrition of salary. It wasn't like an increase or going all in or anything. They're taking your money from ticket sales. They're taking your money from merchandising, and it is going straight into their pockets right now. I'm envisioning the the, uh, uh, Monopoly man. That's John Stanton right now, is Mr. Moneybags. That is how John Stanton is feeling at the moment. And he's charging you rent with fucking hotels on it <laughs> by raising the prices on season tickets for the coming season. And to do that, to do that, I, I think there were a lot of people. The Mariners had so much goodwill after last year, making the playoffs, having an unexpectedly great season, having a young superstar. I will tell you that goodwill is dried up. This team does not have goodwill left. This front office does not have goodwill left. The players do, most of them. Well, one of them in particular does right now. But We'll get to that in a second. The reality is, it's now or never for this front office. because the, Now or never? I mean, if they 
if they win in a big way, people will come back. But the amount of people who bought season tickets after last season and the playoff run, I've had multiple people tell me they're not. It was like the Sounders in their opening season. Everybody bought tickets, and then they went to the games, and they were like, actually, fuck this. There are way too many soccer games. It is a way too long season. Do they have a strong fan base? Of course they do. Is it as big as it was their inaugural season? Absolutely not. And for the Mariners, there were people who were like, I need more baseball after that playoff run. So I have had multiple people personally tell me that they are not renewing their season tickets for next year or their game packs for next year because you didn't give people what they wanted. And the reality is multiple game packs for baseball is a lot to invest in. All of a sudden you realize you have life to go to and you missed like eight of your 20 games. So that was something they sold us on last year and that shit ain't going to work this year. Am I wrong about that? I... I think that there's probably still people who are excited about the future of the Mariners. I'm not saying that be. people aren't excited about the future of the Mariners. I think there are people who are upset at the front office, and I think it does put pressure on them to spend this offseason. The season. goodwill their payroll, that they have. Their entire payroll, including like dead salary, went from like 141 in 2022 to 148 this season. So yes, that's probably not... It, it's not a, it's a what raise a that increases... Salary. It's fucking inflation. Ex- yes. Like, but th- now here's the interesting thing is... Okay. Before arbitration, they're only committed for like $106 million next year. Oh, I mean, they're definitely going to spend that on players, right? No way the Mariners would have a lower salary than last year. This, they're not going to have a lower salary than last year. Who are they going to spend it on? I mean, that's a fair question. There's nobody in arbitration that should be getting paid anything. I see one minimum salary in there. I assume you're referring to Ty France about <laughs> that. Uh, Josh Rojas, Justin Topa, Trent Thornton, Sam Haggerty, and Mike Ford. There are other arbitration-eligible players. They have only three free agents on the active roster as the end of the season. Teoscar Hernandez. Well, Tom Murphy wasn't, but Dominic Leone. So I don't, I don't think two of those three are going to be breaking the bank. I mean, we'll see. I am very fascinated with what the market is for Teoscar. I would love to have him back. The reality of baseball is I just know he's not coming back. I don't know if I know he's not coming back, but now one of the situations is to the extent that there are free agent hitters out there, they're almost exclusively, there's some good uh, infielders, but there's a lot of outfield first base talent. And I think those are going to be the two spots, you know, whether it's Teoscar or someone replacing him and then a potential replacement for Ty France that the Mariners will be looking I would not want to be Ty France's agent going into this arbitration. I would just have those numbers from 2022 dialed up. He had a lot of at-bats this year. I feel like counting stats can be (laughs) At-bats. He's going to be like, when you factor in hit by pitches, his (laughs) on-base percentage was. They're definitely, they're going to dig deep on this arbitration. And I, I don't, we'll see what the number is. But Ty France should not be after the season. And he can bounce back. I'm willing to accept that. I liked Ty France last year. But you get to a certain point with Ty France where you, I mean, he's a first baseman. He's at, he's at a position that defensively is the least relevant position on the field outside of DH, right? He's not a very good defensive first baseman. He is extraordinarily slow. Doesn't really hit for power. Doesn't really hit for average. Doesn't really get on base that much. And you kind of get to the place of, what would you say that you do here? So, I I mean, the Mariners finished 21st in BR wins above replacement at first base because they have it broken down by position. So it's not like they had the worst situation in the league and it was better than their second base situation, although obviously that stabilized after they added Rojas and, and, I love and Josh Rojas. got rid of Wong. So I don't think second base is a position of need any longer going into the offseason. Like I said, I think it's 
some combination of outfield slash DH, assuming you're probably going to want to stick to the plan of like having four guys who can play the outfield and one of them DHs some of the time, and then first base. Do you think that... Okay, I mean, let's talk about the free agents, because really there's free agent. It's it's a pretty big gap between Shohei Otani and everyone else. Matt Chapman and Cody Bellinger will also four-plus war, I believe, this season. Uh and Chapman. Cody Bellinger is coming off. If they sign Cody Bellinger, I'm not happy. He's coming off a, like cr- a, a career bounce back year. And they're just not going to. That's the reality. He's like, also, you know, he's primarily a center fielder. They've they've got that spot yeah. pretty well filled. Matt Chapman uh, is a third baseman, not not a major position of need. So then you've got Jimer Candelario and Brandon Belt is yeah, the I'm next R. two. Yeah, yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, is the next two, both of whom can play first base. Those those are names that make sense to me. I think older. I, from what we've seen, I don't. The Mariners don't seem to like to spend in free agency, and I think the names. You don't like to spend on hitters in free agency. I mean, I don't. I can't think of anybody that they've signed, right? Like a former Cy Young winner, no, Cy Young? A, a, a hitter. No, yes, no. Who's beyond basically veteran minimum? Right? Not during AJ Pollock, Tommy Lasella. AJ Pollock was the most that they spent on a free agent hitter in the Jerry Depoto era, right? He was. He ended up more than Nori Aoki, right? You're just gonna leave me a blank stare. It's not good podcasting. I know you what you're doing here, but it's not good podcast material. AJ Pollock <laughs> is the most that they've spent on a hitter. But who knows? Maybe they'll spend four hundred million dollars. <laughs> sure. I mean, maybe they'll just think of Shohei as a pitcher eventually. It's all or nothing. It is all or nothing with this free agency because otherwise what you get to is maybe you try to bring Teoscar back. I feel like it's going to be like a Mitch Hanniger type situation. He was healthy. The strikeouts are not great. Especially on a team that finished second in the league in strikeout, right? Somebody struck out more than the Mariners? Yeah, and I think... Let me double check. How is that possible? I think it was the Minnesota Twins. We've made the playoffs. I mean, I, I guess that does go to show that maybe strikeouts aren't that horrible, but like, right. I'm just shocked that they're, because right, the Mariners were in historic levels for strikeouts. I mean, I guess they weren't completely historic. They weren't, they weren't number one all the time. Yeah, it was the Twins who struck for out 51 more players times. Striking out that many times. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> but. I think what's going to happen is maybe they bring Teoscar back. And the reality is there will be some pitching that is traded this offseason. Obviously, you want to have a lot of pitching around. The Mariners just have too much pitching at the moment. At some point, Robbie Ray is going to come back next season. And I do think it makes sense. Process-wise, Pitchers having great pitchers is excellent. Having young pitching talent is not as valuable as having young hitting talent. And which doesn't mean that and other teams are desperately searching for controllable pitching. I and especially yeah the con- the controllable aspect of it. I don't know if they're going to be able to go out and get a one to one prospect major league ability with a pitcher for a hitter. But if you can find those teams that are looking at Brian Wu, Bryce Miller, somebody like that, or right? also you know if it's someone who's a similar age to Logan Gilbert, but is later in the arbitration process because he debuted earlier. So therefore, you know it's adding a little bit of payroll, but not the massive contract you would give out in free agency. You'd have to add a pretty good hitter to trade Logan, Logan Gilbert, though. Like I mean, they, I think they he's the guy who's going to get traded. I think they'd have to find a confident middle-of-the-order hitter who's under 30. 
Yes. So that's, I don't know how many of those players that are out there. I mean, the Mariners could, I, there's obviously Pete Alonso is a name that's been thrown around. It seems to me like the Mets are not wanting to trade Pete Alonso. He's basically their most marketable star still. It, it would be a big reset for the Mets to trade Pete Alonso. I think that is an unlikely one. I would be excited about it because he, he is the exact type of player that the Mariners need at the moment. Uh, we'll see. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. But it is the kind of trade that would warrant trading somebody like Logan Gilbert, other young pitching talent, to get in young hitting talent that is going to anchor that offense in a way that they need. That's what we talked about with the Astros. Every single player of the Rangers, top to bottom, there is not a non-scary hitter in the Rangers lineup. Yeah. And when we were at that game on Thursday, it was like I was just waiting for everybody to hit a homer. Every single player that came out. <laughs> That's how it goes when you play against the Rangers. And the Astros are so deep and so talented offensively that the Mariners are not at that level. And this is the this is the ALS that they're in. They need to compete with those teams because ultimately they were knocked out of the playoffs because of those teams. If the Rangers don't have the season they have, the Mariners are probably a wild card this year. Well, if, because if they win more of the games in the last 10 that they played against the Astros and Rangers, I think is the, the way I would put it. I mean, yes, that, that as well. But what was the record last year? Were they better last year than this year? Uh, they won more games, but had a worse run differential okay. last year. I mean, in the in the NL, they were a playoff team. They weren't that far off. No, but they the reality the, they won five more games than anyone else. They didn't make the playoffs. There was, there were two very good teams in the AL West, and a one lot of, of teams make the playoffs. One of them, in particular, got good by spending a lot of money in free agency. It's amusing because the, the Rangers have not not spent money in the in free agency as well. But it's more to retain their own guys than it is to go out and add players necessarily via free agency. I mean, what, what's interesting is like last year the Rangers were the poster children for boy, it's dangerous to spend a lot of money in free agency because you know Corey Seager got hurt, right? Mm-hmm. And then they they were you know distant, you know out of the mix playoff mix entirely in the AL West after spending so much money. And this year now they're all of a sudden the poster children for let's spend money, which is amusing because all the teams that did spend money in free agency this year did not reap any benefits from it. Well, that's not net. The Phillies are pretty freaking like okay. the Trey Turner thing at the beginning of the season is not what it, what Fair. it is right now. But, uh, which brings us of course to Cal Raleigh's well, comments. Jose Abreu is negative war this year. I even still think that they found somebody like Jose Abreu though. That is kind of shocking. Which brings us to Cal Raleigh's comments after they were eliminated on Saturday. Anytime you can add, I mean, look over there in their locker room right over there. They've added more than anybody else, and look where it got them. There's more than one way to skin a cat, that's for sure. But going out and getting these big names, people who have done it, people who have been there, people who are leaders, people who have shown time and time again that they can be successful in this league is definitely what would help this clubhouse. Then before Sunday's game, he apologized. So fucking dumb. Obviously, yesterday was a really emotional day for everybody. I just want to apologize to my teammates, my coaches, fans. It wasn't a time to talk about what ifs in that scenario. That being said, I'm not going to apologize for wanting to win and wanting to bring a World Series to the city. They deserve it. The fans in our organization does, and I'm committed to doing that. That being said, I love all my teammates and coaches over there, and I'd do anything for them. I really thought we had the pieces to win this year. We came up short, and that falls on me as the team leader is one of the main players every day. I love that Cal Raleigh th- fancies himself a team leader as well. He's I mean, he leader. is, but it's like there are other players that I probably think of first and foremost before Cal Raleigh, but he's right. 
And I, I mean, I, I think the reason he apologized primarily, like when you say we need to go out and get other players, you're saying the players we have here are good enough. I don't even know if the players were taking. I we'll see. This feels like a clearly they were. had a conversation with him and was like. So the way the reporting was is that Cal initiated the conversation with Scott Service on before Sunday's game. They definitely did talk, but that it wasn't like Scott Service called him in. Interesting. Because I think I think there is that element of, and then especially like I I know this experience. You say some you something, you even write it, and then you like see it get displayed and aggregated. Yes, and it sounds totally different. It's like yes. wow. No, I, I, I didn't mean that. He's like, I want to have good players and I want to win. He's like, we should spend money to try to win. I mean, that's an, the the apologizing to the fans is the funny part there because every <laughs> yeah, fan yeah, agreed with yeah, it. Yeah, no, no fan is like, <laughs> won't somebody think cons- of Ty France's how, feelings? How dare they consider replacing <laughs> any of these players? I love all of these guys. <laughs> I'm sure that as a person, Cal Raleigh does, but sometimes you're friends with people and they're not good enough baseball players, like. That that is what the good vibes only for the Mariners is gonna come by winning fucking games. That's where the good vibes come from. So, uh, it's it's it was good to know from Cal. He's the same person who had comments about the Paul Seawald trade, Correct. which in the end, Not surprising, kind of worked out for everybody. Yeah. But at the same time, I could see how he could have perceived it as the team was a little bit rebooting yeah. for next year, and they were. Yeah, they were. They were thinking of. If, if there was almost anybody, obviously you have the progression of Kellenic becoming an everyday MLB player. I think Kellenic is going to be, get better next year, right? Kellenic is somebody who still has it in him as a top prospect to become, he could be an all-star player. Dominic Canzone can as well, though. Dominic Canzone's Canzone's swing, advanced stats were not as good as you might think. I pre- presumably, I guess, because his outfield defense was a little rough. But, but his swing and the way that they talk about him power-wise, if he puts it all together, yeah. he could be a 30-35 home run hitter. I don't feel like they need to hit I mean, some of the guys that they will consider in free agency are left-hand outfielders. I feel like we're good there. We're pretty well set. No, I, I think that's fine. They need a new first baseman. But they need a right-hand hitting outfielder. Yes. Whether that's Teoscar Hernandez or someone else. But You're, I want to leave you with one more note of optimism now. Okay, sure. So where did Mariners players finish in war this season for fan graphs? The Mariners had seven of the top 100 players in Major League Baseball in war this season. Julio finished 10th, 4th among AL players, oddly 4th in the AL West. All four top players in the AL were from the AL West. Wait, who is ahead of him? Well, I think you should be able to guess this. In the end, Adoles Garcia? No. Jordan? Altuve? No. No. Altuve missed time due to injury, right? I mean, you're missing the most obvious one. Oh, Shohei. Shohei is one. Was Trout good enough? No, he did not okay. play enough. The the top two hitters from the team that won the division. Oh, Corey Seager. And... Again, the top two hitters. Uh, uh, yeah, what's his name? Marcus, Marcus Simeon. Simeon. So it's Marcus Simeon, Shohei, Corey Seager, and then, and then Julio. Yeah. Uh, JP finished 29th. Cal- JP, by the way. This season from J.P. Crawford. Oh, monster. Th- that I mean, we, that's the, yeah, we didn't talk about that because I, I mentioned the walk-off double on Thursday. The Grand Slam on Friday. Like, it, that's what sucks about not even getting to Game 162 is that moment. Got, those two moments got lost. It's it's funny, and this this is the, the piece that I is all takes Tristan 
I will say about somebody like Ty France. These things can change wildly year yeah. over year. J.P. Crawford was hitting ninth last year. Yeah. And he was somebody who, if you would have asked me at any point during this last season and the offseason, if it was Trey Turner will be an upgrade. I don't know where Trey Turner finished in a war. Uh, but I would guess that it's probably, if it's higher, not that much higher, and I'd probably guess it's lower. J.P. Crawford became one of the best shortstops in the American League, hitting for power, hitting for average, and even just the reliability of it, his defense. Like, J.P. Crawford is fucking awesome. His defense did not necessarily rate as good as you might think, but uh, still, again, the combination, the whole package was was quite good. Uh, Trey Turner was not in the top 30. Adolis Garcia was... So he wasn't like totally far off here. Uh, I'm still not seeing him. So, I mean, he had such a slow start. Not close to JP. Uh, Cal Raleigh was 35th. George Kirby, 42nd. Luis Castillo, 78th. We're going to have the conversation about should George Kirby be the number one starter next season at a later date. Uh, What's the difference? Who cares? Gino, one of those two came through last weekend or last week. Gino, 95th. And Logan Gilbert, 96th. So, like, the core is good. The Really what the Mariners need to do is mitigate the work weaknesses. Like, obviously, if they can show Otani, that's amazing. But it's more about fixing the weaknesses than it is about accentuating the strengths at this point. That's what I would wow, tell you. Wow, five wins for JP? Yeah. That's a pretty monster season. You know, monster season. season. No, I'm right now, and he's kind of entering his prime, or in his prime, I would say. Yeah. Obviously, these things go up and down, but... J.P. Crawford is, as far as hitters go, I think your real core is J.P., Cal, Kellenic, Julio. Is it? Yeah, probably. I, I mean, Gino, I mean, G- Gino is much older. Yeah. a good player, but, it, you know, as next season wears on eventually, like, Gino's not going to be there forever. Let's just add Hager to the mix. As, as a core player. Yeah. Yes. Came, you want to talk about somebody who came through repeatedly in the last week of the season. Sam Hagerty was getting on base constantly. The Rangers wanted no part of giving him a pitch to head. All right, let's get into the roundup, starting with the Kraken. Positive war, by like about two wins last year. Uh, was injured for a lot of spring training, right? Started most of the season injured. Sam Hagerty. This is a professional baseball player. For sure. One thing they got to resolve, they probably have too many right-handed utility men, as we've talked about. Uh, I don't know when we're going to podcast next week, but it's possible. The Kraken's regular season will already be underway by then. They open up next Tuesday as part of the ring ceremony for the reigning Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Between now and then, the Kraken still have two more preseason games to play, facing Vancouver and Abbotsford on Wednesday, traveling to Edmonton on Friday after hosting the Oilers on Monday night, a game that they were losing 3-1 last I checked. Uh, I will have to go double-check whether that was the final score or anything was added 4-1. The Oilers added a fourth in the third period. Uh, They beat Vancouver 3-1 last Thursday, getting a pair of goals from Elliot Tolvanen. Seattle Sounders earned a point in a scoreless draw Saturday at Nashville without Raul Diaz, who was a late scratch due to back pain. A Bears stepped into the starting 11, had a headed goal called back for offsides by VAR. The Sounders still had the better of chances with a 13 shots to just five for Nashville, although the teams combined for less than one XG in a very defensive game. Good news, Christian Rolland started with the full 90 in this one. That game started a busy stretch of three games in eight days that will largely determine where the Sounders enter the playoffs. They are a win away from clinching a playoff spot in the Western Conference, remain tied for second in the West Standings, 
Now with Salt Lake after RSL beat slumping LAFC 1-0 on Sunday, but just three points separate the Sounders from sixth place Vancouver, which comes to town on Saturday for the Cascadia Cup finale. Before that, the Sounders host 13th place LA Galaxy in a match they should win on Wednesday. The Galaxy just 2-7-6 on the road this season. Wow, what happened to the Galaxy? Well, they lost a lot. Uh-huh. No, I, they had Chicharito subsequent to that. I don't know what kind of season he's having, but they are they are, they are are struggling. Oil Reign also scratched out a point on Sunday with just 10 players for the second half at home after Alana Cook was sent off just before halftime for a foul denying a goal-scoring opportunity just outside the box. Uh, the Reign led 1-0 early through Bethany Balser, who headed home a Megan Rapino cross, but conceded to Caroline later in the first half. They played that one without Rose Lavelle and Sofia Huerta due to injury. Coming up Friday, the last regular season home game for Megan Rapino. Wow. A tribute to her legendary career forever, Megan, they're tele- calling it. This will be nationally televised on CBS at 5 p.m. on Friday. Uh, I believe the lower bowl is already sold out. They've opened the upper bowl for what will be the highest attended standalone game in franchise history and could threaten the NWSL record attendance of 32,000 for a standalone game set by San Diego, the Wave, in their opening game at their new stadium. The Arena did have 42,000-plus for their doubleheader with the Sounders last year. It also happens to be a really crucial match in the NWSL regular season. Washington comes in one point ahead of the rain, who currently hold the last NWSL playoff spot, two points up on the Houston Dash with two games remaining. Uh, Cook will miss out on that match due to the red card, but uh, rain certainly hoping to derive a benefit from that large, loud home crowd. Are you going to this? I will be going to it. I hope to be covering it, but we'll see on that one. Stay tuned. So you're going no matter what, though? Yes, otherwise I'll get tickets. You have men's soccer. We've got bad news. Oh, no. They're out of the rundown. Oh, After losing God. 2 nothing at home to Oregon State on Saturday, dropping 2-1, 1-1. One, one one it's so nice. Play. Have we ever just... Can we just reflect for a second? What? Thank God the Mariner season is over. <laughs> what do you mean? Just. It was so long? It was... It just, thank God the Mariner season isn't over. That's, that's, that's just it. Like, <laughs> it was up. It was down. It, it was a... It wasn't even a fun run. There was like a fun like month in there. I mean, yeah, the the month with the most wins in franchise history. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That was fun. It was it was a fun month, but just like, I think we're all ready to move on with our lives. That was the feeling that I felt like. It was going to be a lot of commitment to to more Mariners playoff games. You know what I mean? Like last year, a lot of emotional commitment. It was kind of like last season never ended, and it just carried over. I disagree with that because last season was good vibes all season. But we were just so invested. Like you just need a break from baseball. I mean, this you season have to take was a mental break. This and season was frustrating because it was like a Seahawks season because every game was a referendum on the off season. Yes. Call me when they've signed Shohei. Just, just let me not think about baseball for like I told you last year. I was paying attention to all baseball, even the year before. Right, the Mariners just missed the playoffs. I knew who was playing in the like playoff series. Like the second that the Mariners were done, I looked, I pulled up my phone. And I was like, oh, I guess the Rangers are playing the Rays. I had no idea. I was like, I don't want to think about baseball at all. I we just are want to done. think about the Astros losing. Me and baseball, it's win, lose. I don't care. I'm not going to know. I mean, you you obviously are rooting for the Astros in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of that too, though. What if, what if there was like one of Luca's 
uh, baseball teammates dad was saying that like they were booing Jose Altuve and I was like you're jealous like it was well, be- wasn't even part of the cheating scandal everyone said he didn't want any part of it Altuve yeah I I think maybe there's like weird like short bashing there's the the world at large does not agree with short king summer but uh oh I I respect Jose Altuve no, I'm saying that's what I'm saying. The, there's like the the latent prejudices that we have as a country sometimes come out in things like booing Jose Altuve, right? I think he's just guilty by association. But I don't what, think people are parsing the Astros cheating scandal. There's always there's always a deeper reason to why people feel vitriol towards certain people. It's usually racism, I still right? Think also, the Astros weren't the only ones who were cheating. The, Everyone was cheating. I think the Astros were more blatantly cheating, but maybe you can. You can maybe can, the Astros just got caught more than usually. The other teams. Take a step back and be like, why do people hate this person? Is it racism? Is it sexism? Is it homophobia? Is it a- a- being anti-short? Like <laughs> there almost always is a reason why people hate some some person as a group, and it's usually one of those things that they I are. I think not- a lot of. It, I think what you're also not like you said it last week again. It's jealousy. Like, people hate Jose Altuve because he's associated with the Astros, and he's so fucking people good. People don't hate Jordan in the way that they hate Jose Altuve. Was he even part of those teams? I don't know when he got but there. do they actually hate... I think... I think you're not understanding how society works. I think you're not understanding how society works, which is hating the Astros. There, there is still... There is something deep down in society that usually judges people for one of those things. And people won't even say it like... I don't think they that won't say it height on such is a on the same level. As, no, no, I'm not saying height is on prejudice. the same level. But, like, obviously those other things are are the primary reasons that society at large dislikes people. But there's something about Jose Altuve that bothers people. I guess Jordan got there in 2019. But were they, they were still cheating in 2019, right? I don't... They got, I don't care they about the cheating. Get over the cheating, people. Who cares? A lot of people. I think you're underestimating this. People need to grow the fuck up and move on. I, I agree with this assessment, but that's asking a lot. The Astros I'm cheating four fan. years ago years ago didn't have them rock Luis Castillo on Monday. I agree. It doesn't matter. The Astros... They won the World Series last year. I mean, the... the, the the situation is what it is, but people like there's. I've, I've said this reason, before. I hate the Patriots deep down. I hate the Patriots again because of my reverse hatred for all those things we just talked about and the city of Boston, obviously. But it's ultimately because they were good for so long. I don't care about the Patriots anymore because they're not good. There's no the jealousy aspect doesn't exist anymore. You're not feeling it about the Red Sox right now. Yeah, even I, though they have that cheating manager Alex Cora. Yeah, <laughs> cheating Alex Cora is what I call him. <laughs> Scrambling dreadlock. <laughs> the, the cheating thing is it's such a stupid thing where it's like if if you told me that Julio Rodriguez corked his bat or whatever, I'd be like, hell yeah, he did. I'd be like, he should have corked his bat more in the last week of the season. <laughs> no, I don't think the corking the bat helped your plate discipline. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so Ooh. sick of people being upset about the stupid bullshit like this. Well, maybe you have you considered not following sports or politics or culture? <laughs> All right, let's talk about UW football. Speaking of people being annoyed about stupid things, apparently Husky Twitter is ablaze about the fact that they didn't beat Arizona by enough, uh, winning 34 to 20, 31 to 24. Think about how fucking privileged you are <laughs> to be upset about not beating Arizona by enough. Who cares? I, Literally, who cares? I agree. This, what is, I just, it's like, oh yeah, they beat Arizona on the road in Arizona. 
just be happy about that. I'm old enough to remember when we didn't beat Arizona. It's actually been a while. Didn't beat Arizona on the road. It was Arizona State last year during the day. But this team is not that radically different. I actually came away from that thinking, Arizona's a pretty okay team. Well, part of it is people are like saying, well, they were without their starting quarterback and their running back, which obviously like then they just put in a much more effective running back. The quarterback, we'll see. But Noah Fafita only threw one interception in this game, which is less than Jaden Laura was averaging previously against much weaker competition. I, I take no portents from this game. The thing that third Felton brother Christian Capel pointed out is in 2016, a UW team went to Arizona, needed overtime to win a game early in the season. And then went to the college football playoff. Yeah. So it's like fine. Like there's a whole lot of like the Huskies are beatable. And it's like, yeah, of course they were fucking beatable on Friday and they're beatable today. Like let's all remain. That's call. a Pete Carroll toughen up. Like <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Pete Carroll's toughen up just really applies to almost every situation. Uh, and yet we, we, we still need to toughen up about a lot of the Seahawks. Uh, Michael Penix Jr.'s 12.1 yards per completion, easily a season low. He previously wow. averaged at least 14.6 That was in all such a days. bad game that he played. He only had 12.1 <laughs> yards per completion. But for context... So fucking stupid. He had 12.1 or fewer in five games last season. Yeah, no, they, had, they hadn't quite figured out the offense. This game did remind me a little bit more of last year. The Cal game in particular, it seemed like. Where At they, no point. Arizona was just really kind of like trying to take away the big play, set, playing seven defensive backs for most of this game. The the halftime broadcast wanted them to run the ball a lot more. And it's like, actually, I think they're being perfectly effective. They've scored a bunch of touchdowns. They didn't have that many possessions. They did not. They had three real possessions and then one with like 30 seconds at the end of the half. There were some kind of bad penalties in there. At no point, the way the penalties could, are the one thing that concerned me. But they they weren't even necessarily proper calls. Like there was a play well, on Muhammad, where I was like, "There was that's not that's a no call." I think that was pass interference. I mean, yes, but a lot of other teams are playing with Pac-12 refs. As it turns out, eleven of them. God, I can't wait. That's the thing that I'm most excited about. And for Christian Campbell again. They are second nationally in penalty yards per game behind Colorado State. So think, that's that's a concern to me. I think they are intentionally telling the secondary to play physical. And basically... I don't think they're telling them that. I think that's... That they're just not good enough. And it's making them play physical? Yeah. I think they are... Comf- I think coaching staff is comfortable with them playing physical. Because they play well, physical I think they'd rather get year. a they'd rather get a pass interference than give up a 40-yard pass. I exactly. Mean, that was the... I don't know which play that was, but... I can't remember if that was Elijah Dixon or Th- I think this might have been Thaddeus Dixon rather than Elijah Jackson, I should say. But some, you know, just basically tackled the receiver instead of giving up a forty-yard gain, you give up a fifteen-yard penalty. Yeah. But it also, is the right coaching point. But you'd rather just never, not be in the position to make that physical, decision. They're never going to call enough pass interferences. You're mm, gonna, they called plenty. They called a lot. They didn't call. I mean, they called a lot. But again, if you play physical on every play. They're not going to call pass interference on every play. I don't mean to sound like Jose Altuve over here, but like the reality I'm is, you sound like Pat Riley over there. Playing physical is the smart thing to do on the secondary. If if you're not, if you don't have elite level talent, no, I think getting your head around and making a play on the ball is the smart thing to do. But again, that that takes more. I just the, judging from the perspective of, did I at any point feel any nervousness in my chest in this game? And the answer was no. There was not a second that I wasn't just casually watching. The only second was when Roma Dunce went forward to try to recover the onside kick. And 
Uh, Kellen DeBoer said he got the wind knocked out of him, although it sounds like the injury was a bit more serious than that. But uh, the Huskies, thankfully, like the Seahawks, have a bye week for everyone to get healthy, including Jalen McMillan. Yeah, I fully agree with that. The possibility of Roma Dunze being injured, that was scary. Right. (laughs) The play itself, even if Arizona got the ball in that situation, I wouldn't, I might have perked up. But being nervous, absolutely not. This is a game that they were up two touchdowns and fumbled at the five-yard line when they were about to go up three touchdowns. Toughen up. I agree. So, we've made it. It's the Pac-12. You're just not... This isn't fucking USC in 2004. You know, like, Pac-12 games are going to be hard. That's the reality of it. The Huskies are undefeated heading into their bye week. Oregon is undefeated heading into a bye week. Those teams will play at Husky Stadium on Saturday, October 14th at 12.30 p.m. on ABC. It's all set up. The stage is set. This is it. No, it's, it's, not, be, it's not just it because USC is coming and Utah and, and Oregon State and, and Washington State and all sorts of other tests. But this, this is the first big one and maybe the biggest one. Just I mean, the there were some big games in 2016. This is up there with the biggest games. Let's say of the new Husky Stadium. Yes. But even the reality being dating back to the since the year 2000, this is possibly the biggest game since then. When you factor in both teams being undefeated, the rivalry, the fact that this is the last season of the Pac-12, this weird link that we have with Oregon now, like, and just how good that Oregon team seems. A win, if they are able to beat Oregon, whoever wins this game, I think becomes a favorite, a prohibitive favorite to go to the college football playoff. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, we talked last week about the scenario where two teams from the Pac-12 go to the playoff, and I've thought about this a little more, and I think this scenario is a lot less likely because you've brought up like the Alabama situation, and part of the reason for that is, I don't know if the SEC still does, I think they do. When you have divisions, it's more likely because... You know, the Pac-12 doesn't have divisions anymore. You can have two teams that go like 8-1 and one in conference, and one of them loses to the other, or one team goes 8-1, and, one, and the other goes 9-0. And, and, and then some 6-3 and three bullshit team from the other division <laughs> They're goes. called Wisconsin. <laughs> they have a name, okay, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking mostly of the SEC. I was thinking of like, it's like... Who are, there are some really bad teams who play the Big Ten Championship games. It's true. It's like one dominant team against just a guy. But when you get rid of divisions, well, I think that is generally a good move. It, it certainly makes things more interesting. I mean, it makes it less likely that, you know. There's only one more year of the 14 playoff also. And this is true. Like, eventually that's not going to matter. This, the next year, it's not going to matter. This is the one more can year. You, can you just try to, try to guess? Oh my God, I love this game. Let's, let's, I don't even, we could go back so, so many years <laughs> Who played in the big? Who is the Big Ten West champion? The Big Ten West champion. Do you want to try to guess that? Let's start with twenty twenty two. Okay, so so the Michigan schools in Ohio State are in the Big Ten. He's in Penn State. <laughs> it's like unfair. I'm shocked that Michigan State won the East Division at some point. I mean, the college football playoff. That's my joke it. about Wisconsin is so dead on. <laughs> they've made it all so many times. I mean, they since it's happened, they've made it one, two, three, four, five, six times. One of those times was Russell Wilson, right? Since 2011, 
And they won it. They beat they Michigan the, State. They the, were only number 15. Went to the Rose the next Bowl. year they dropped 70 as the winner of the leaders division. Anyway, let's. do you want to try 2022? Iowa? The Purdue Boilermakers. That was my, that was my first guess. I should have stuck with number two Michigan against unranked <laughs> Purdue. Who do you think number two Michigan played the previous year? Was Wisconsin still good then? That was the number 13 ranked Iowa Hawkeyes. Look, oh, okay. I mean, they got to number 13. Yeah. Uh, Michigan beat them 42 to three. Okay. Then the previous year was... Number four ranked Ohio State played against... I'm going to guess Wisconsin now. The Northwestern Wildcats. Oh, damn. They were number 14 at that point. It's Somehow. That game was actually kind of close, 22 to 10, the year before that. When do you think the last time? Let's do this. When do you, it, it goes Purdue, Iowa, West. Northwestern, Wisconsin, Northwestern, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Iowa, number four. When do you think the last time was that the West Division won the Big Ten Championship? 2015? Nope, it has been over a decade. 2011? It was 2011. Wisconsin won it back-to-back years. The first two years Again, of was, the Leaders and Legends division. No, 2011 was the Russell Wilson. Exactly. Season. Russ yeah. and then Monty Ball, where they dropped, they hung 70 on Nebraska. I don't know. What the fuck? I, like, what Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan were doing in 2011 through 2013, they were just fucking around. But, like, since then, it's, the, the boys are back in town. So anyway, that person's name is the Wisconsin Badgers, the bullshit team. That is that young man's name. Name is the Wisconsin Badgers. This year, are they still doing that for this year, or is it gone now? Uh, I don't know about this year. So I would say that the uh, the most the biggest game yeah, at Husky Stadium, the renovated Husky Stadium, was 2016. Uh, Gus Johnson on the call every single year. That's how you know oh, you're getting good stuff. Of course, he must have made 42 to three exciting. Somehow. Well, I guess that was not a law of Gus. Uh, week five, Huskies hosted Stanford. They were four and zero coming off of that Arizona. This was on a Friday night, right? Friday night, Stanford was three and zero. Stanford was ranked seventh. Huskies were ranked tenth. That is wild how high Stanford, and we just beat the shit out of them. 44 to 6. I mean, we basically at that point ended Stanford's run. Stanford has not been the same team since then. They beat us a lot of times since then, but. uh, Did they? You you question that? I recall. In Stanford, yeah. A game or two. There was with, um, not Jonathan Taylor. What's his name? There was a running back who kind of went off against us a couple years ago. Whose name I mean, they, sounds like Jonathan Taylor. They would have beat the Huskies in Palo Alto in both 2017 and 2019. And then I think 2021, the Huskies finally ended that streak. But overall, as a as a conference power, Stanford has not been the same since that moment. And now they're in the ACC. Uh, I mean, they finished that season ranked 12th. They went 10-3. and three. I think they were pretty damn good. I think... Ended Stanford. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Give me this. Fair enough. They did lose forty-two to sixteen at home to Washington State the next week. Do you know that? And then they lost somehow. This is an amazing score. They lost ten-five to the Colorado team that would go on to represent the oh uh, Stephen Montez Pac-12 South in right? that year's championship. I mean, game that was a good Oscar. Colorado team. But then they after <laughs> going <laughs> that Colorado team probably counts as some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that's the like definition <laughs> do you think big Ten schools and fans are like looking at it like oh they had to play colorado <laughs> yes. you, were, you were you saw the quote from uh dan lanning before the year when colorado left right where he was like yeah remind a- me of when they did anything that uh, 
<laughs> you set the alarm for it. That was the al- that was the alarm for Dan Lanning shitting on Colorado. <laughs> you hit it. Let me tell Dan you. Lanning wasn't here. Dan Lanning was in Georgia or wherever. Uh, let me tell happened. you. That motivated did not turn out to be a motivating factor for Colorado against Oregon. against it. Well, they play for clicks, we play for wins. Uh, uh, but after that that ten five loss at home to Colorado, ten <laughs> five loss. 10-5. Did they have their was their quarterback injured? What I'm happened? just gonna say this straight up in the leaders and legends era, the Big Twelve leaders division was two and one. They have not won since it's been the East and the West. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, when it was leaders, uh, no. R- r- I don't, I don't know when Ryan Burns gave away Keller Chris that season, but they won the final uh, six games of the year Stanford to finish 10-3, and three, capping it with a 25-23 win over North Carolina in the Sun Bowl. So that was a good team. And they finished ranked again in 2017. The Huskies did not immediately end Stanford. This is not a Jim Harbaugh, Seahawks, Niners, Thanksgiving night, Richard Sherman eating turkey on the field situation. <laughs> We've ended ended Jim Harbaugh a couple times. And you know what? We're coming for you again, Jim Harbaugh. You can't escape us. Oh, boy. I love the Big Ten map Wikipedia. Like, it has become a complicated Wikipedia. (laughs) There's maps of the West Coast. There's maps of the Midwest. It is all over the place. There's Big Ten affiliate members. Johns Hopkins and Notre Dame. What do you think Johns Hopkins plays in the Big Ten? Probably some shit we'll never play. Oh, what what sport do they play? It's yeah. gotta be lax, right? I, I was gonna say field hockey. I guess I don't. Yeah, I don't know if they play lax in the Big Ten for sure. But field hockey, we know. I saw the field hockey stadium at Michigan State. So. Uh it is lax. You're right. Oh, those are lax. What, do you know what Notre Dame plays in the Big Ten? Hockey, men's ice hockey. Yeah, okay. I'm I'm good at this guessing game. I was just trying to see if they still do uh, East and West for this year, but I I can't figure it out. It can't be that complicated information. To... <laughs> look, this Wikipedia, look, this things is... have gotten complicated in the Big Ten. I don't know if you noticed. I agree that they've gotten complicated. You can just go to ESPN.com. And That's actually yeah, what, I, what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> we have the service available for it's you. It's important to do research on your new conference before you arrive in it. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> I don't know. That's... <laughs> <laughs> they do they do do east and west okay i don't know whether the championship game wait, how many wait, teams do you, do you think do you know who's leading the big 10 west have you seen this i t- i have seen it and how <laughs> many teams from the big 10 west do you think are ranked <laughs> uh, you know the big 10 west would get really good next year if they started out of the pac 12 teams i mean that is that is true the east has number two four and six in the country and the west has no one ranked I mean, honestly, if you're looking for a team to get unbeaten in the college football playoff, this is the way to go. And two teams to go. This, because I just, this fucking conference. Then you put both Michigan and Ohio State in the... Uh, I just want to remind people when they say that the Huskies will never, never win a game in the Big Ten. Who's saying this? Just, there are people who are like, is so scared of the Big Ten. They literally already have a Big Ten win this season. <laughs> <laughs> just talk to Katie. Katie is so scared of the Big Ten. There are three good teams in this conference. That's the TV money. We have talked about this over and over and over again. Is that the same famous cousin Katie who put a, head, a tombstone commemorating the Pac-12? She absolutely did. In her front lawn. Yeah, that's what we could finish on. Katie, Katie proved why she is the Pelton Cast MVP with that uh, Pac-12 tombstone. I have heard the famous, uh, not the famous, I heard, I heard her uh, uh, husband, Ben, who is a coog, is very upset about the tombstone. Mm. <laughs> Commemorating the Pac-12. Unfamous husband, Ben. 
Oh, Lord. Well, congrats to Wisconsin on their Big Ten West victory and subsequent 42-6 to loss in the uh, Big Ten championship game. Unfortunately, we're going to close this week on a little bit different note. We're remembering longtime sports writer Jim Capel, who died Sunday at age 61. Uh, his nephew, Christian, uh, who we've mentioned pre- previously of on Montlake, tweeted that uh, Jim had been battling ALS in dementia. Uh, Capel was a native of Longview, Washington, who was an editor at the UW Daily as a student before a lengthy professional career, spent primarily covering Major League Baseball in the Olympics, working at the St. Paul Pioneer Press and the Seattle PI before joining ESPN in 2001 and spending 17 years writing for ESPN.com and ESPN Magazine. Uh, A couple of favorite Capel memories I wanted to note here. In 2012, he biked to what was then Safeco Field uh, to cover the final inning of the perfect game thrown by Philip Humber against the Mariners in his biking clothes. And a few weeks later, when Matt Cain threw a no-hitter for the Giants, retiring Seattle Times columnist Larry Stone tweeted that Capel was bicycling furiously to San Francisco, a hilarious tweet that I still remember over a decade later. And then my favorite story that Capel wrote was his piece on the life of Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi playing outside Moscow for team owner Shabtai von Kolmanovich ruling in rubles, which led to a friendship with Bird and Capel covering more WNBA late in his career. Uh, you know, I think you could go around everyone in the Seattle sports media who knew Jim Capel and worked alongside him, and I don't think anyone would have anything negative to say. He was, you know, a terrific writer and a terrific member of the journalism community and uh, 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 an incredible loss for us. So, on that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.